Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Recovery Nuggets Podcast. I'm your host, David Clement. I'm here with Mary Beth O'Connor. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. She's the author of From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. So I appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I really, I'm glad, looking forward to the conversation. I think we got a lot of uh, good topics we can cover today. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I pulled up, I have a couple of your tweets pulled up. So I think just from that, we can get a couple of little nuggets as well. So sure. Yeah. So yeah, tell me about yourself and how, you know, kind of your backstory, and then we'll get into what prompted you to write the book and how your recovery is going today. Yeah. I mean, this short version is really that, you know, child abuse led to childhood addiction, right? Which is a very Mm. common story in our world. And um, I mean, my mother wasn't bonded to me. I was left once for six months and once for three years. And um, but but and she was violent sometimes, but things got really bad when I was nine Mm. and she married my stepfather and he was very violent with her. He was physically, sexually violent with me. And it was just the kind of household where you never knew what was going to happen and where what you did and what happened to you did not have much relation at all. Mm. And so for me, I picked up my first drug at 12, which was alcohol. And it was Mm. Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill wine, (laughs) which a lot of people know. Yeah. You know, and and what I noticed about it right away was how much better I felt. I mean, I felt like I felt more relaxed. I felt like I could take a deeper breath. I was giggling mm. with my girlfriend, and that I really noticed that. You know, this is a positive. I I want more, and so I pursued alcohol right away. I mean, I was making opportunities to drink, mm. and I had weed and pills, and I did a lot of acid my sophomore year of high school. And when I was sixteen, I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine, and mm. I was shooting up um, within six months. I mean, I was wow. in full bore addiction in high school. Um, I did a little better during college, but when I, um, in, in, at the end of my senior year, in the middle of my senior year, I started using meth again on a regular basis. And I used it until I was 32. So it was a really long haul for me. It was a really long haul. Plus I had other traumas. I had uh, two rapes, multi-assailant rapes. I, you know, I had a violent boyfriend. I mean, it was just a big, a big um, mess of pain and misery by 32. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you said it, you know, like when we are coming from some trauma and then you get, you don't know what the salve is going to be, but when you find it, that warmth that goes, Oh, okay. Now, now we're home. And, and, and that's really, because that's the problem with, uh, when you find something is that it actually, it does work in the beginning. Yes. Yes. We wouldn't keep going if it didn't work in the beginning. I mean, that's true. And and the, the other thing is there is a really strong connection, right, between trauma, childhood, in particular, repetitive trauma in childhood and developing a substance use disorder. I mean, my odds were like three to four times as high as the average. It was it's a common response because yeah. it does seem to help initially. There's that there's the. Um, there's the emotional release. There's the sort of the 
the taking some of the pain away, but it's also a numbing, right? It's in some ways I was giggling more, but on the other hand, I was also able to tamp down my feelings better. And both of those things were positives. Plus there is that community, right? You're sort of becoming part of a certain group and you're hanging out and you're, you know, laughing and you're, you know, smoking weed and talking about, you know, Lord of the Rings or whatever. I mean, it's a communal side to it in the beginning. Yeah. And you get, you get wrapped up in the lifestyle and the the music and doing stuff. And then you, when the night's over the next day, you call people to recap what we did and how funny it was. And then you look forward to the next time you can do it. And it, it does create this vicious cycle eventually, you know, and it's, yeah. and that's the worst part is like, sometimes when people relapse, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't just, the wheels don't fall off that next day, but eventually you get back to where you really wanted to be, you know, and it's, it can be traumatic. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, some people are able to moderate later, but I do not believe I'm one of those people. I was mm-hmm. really at the very severe end of the spectrum. I mean, c- contrary to when I got sober 30 years ago, I did just have 30 years in January. Yay. Um, yay I know. We used to talk about when I, when I got sober, they taught us that there was like this invisible line. And one day, we didn't know when, but one day we, cr- we crossed over from drug abuser to drug addict. But now, you know, substance use disorder is like all mental health disorders, right? Right. You can have a mild form, a moderate form, a severe form. And where you fall on that spectrum can impact what treatment you need, but also what your future holds. But I've taken that DSM test and I score like 100 percent. I mean, I, I would fall at the very severe end. So I, too, do not believe I can safely use any substance, even if I wouldn't fall back out hard the first time. I think eventually I would. And so I draw a hard line. And I, I for me, I need total abstinence. Sure. and. The, uh, the DM test. I've heard of other tests. I think alluded to it earlier. Like if you had certain mitigating factors in your childhood, like one parent was gone, abuse, something. It it almost not guaranteed, but it was a very high percentage that you would become an addict or alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. That's Is the that average, the eighth. It's the adverse childhood experiences score. I think you're talking about where that's there's it. ten questions, right? And yeah, yeah, and I score a seven or an eight depending on how you interpret one of the questions. And if you score just a four, your odds of developing a substance use disorder are three to four times as high at four, and I'm a seven or an eight. And so, yeah, that's the adverse childhood experiences score. Yeah, that's the ACEs. And that was actually done from insurance companies. I think they kind of came up with it on doing research and so forth. That's, That's kind of what... But now you said, what was the DSM... The, you know, the diagnostic and statistics manuals that where they it's the what psychiatrists use to categorize mental health disorders. And so, okay. you know, anxiety disorder is in there, depressive disorder and all you can have a mild, moderate or severe anxiety disorder. or You can have, you know, depression, yeah. at mild, moderate or severe. And it's the same thing with a substance use disorder. And one of the things we talk about now is how, you know, you don't you shouldn't wait for this horrible bottom. Right. That mm. old ideology was everyone has to have this horrible bottom to ever get sober and it's mm-hmm. just not true but it's also dangerous you know you can die waiting you can get irreversible health conditions waiting you're going to just waste more years of your life and so now the emphasis is on trying to disrupt your substance use disorder as early as possible because you're going to be better off if you stop early rather than waiting it for you know for another 10 years of misery <laughs> yeah yeah 100 and um so at, before we move on, I want to, I just want to ask like, what were, 
kind of what was the end and what were some factors that made you, this is it. I need, because from your story, I mean, you, once you found alcohol, it wasn't a long road for you to be shooting up and, and really have a rough road of it. So how did you pull yourself out and what kind of help was available? So I was 32 and it's 1993 and, um, and I have been using since 12 It started shooting meth at 17. Um, and by 32, I was really having physical problems. Like my body was showing the wear and tear, but also I was just, you know, emotionally devastated and I, I couldn't hold a job and I was miserable and my partner was ready to throw me out. And so it was sort of everything in combination that made me say to him, you know, well, what if I go to rehab? <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Don't throw me out if I go to rehab. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I went into I actually I knew 30 days was probably not going to be enough. And so I went into a longer term program. It was 90 days minimum, a women's program uh, in the Bay Area, which is where I live. Um, but it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, so when I got there. I found out, like in my mind, I'm going for medical treatment. Like that's how I thought about it. I'm going for medical treatment. Um, but when I got there, I found out on the first day that it was a 12-step exclusive. I mean, adamantly exclusive house. So, you know, 12 steps of courses, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all of the anonymouses. Right. Um, and so when I got there... Um, and I learned that, but I, and I raised questions. I said, I don't believe in a higher power. They did say it doesn't have to be God, but any higher power, but I don't believe in a higher power. I, I really wasn't going to turn my will of my life over. That's just uh, not my way of thinking. And I didn't really agree I was powerless and I didn't like to focus on defects, but they swore to me, there is no other way. This is all there is. And that was a real shocker. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, at first I believed them. And so Oh, like I thought, well, let me, you know, find the parts I can use and ignore everything else because they say this is all there is. And so I, I read all the AA big book. I read all the NA text. I tried to pull the parts, you know, that I thought I could use like one day at a time was really helpful to me that, you know, if I was having a craving day, I'd say, you know, I'm not deciding for tomorrow, you know, but for today, yeah. I won't use. And I went through the steps and I tried to think, um, look for the core idea underneath and see if I could use it like the powerless step, I, I thought about it and I decided, well, what I could agree is that I am powerless to moderate. <laughs> like, there's right. no moderating right. for me, right? And so I tried to reframe it to make it fit, but it was still really scary because I am. they they were really adamant that I was going to fail because I wasn't following the program exactly. And, and, and that frightened me. Like, what if they were right? You know, they were telling me it was hopeless. I, I wasn't going to be able to succeed. Um, and so when I got home and I, I emphasized it's 94 and there's no Google. Okay. So I got home and I thought, is it true that there's no other option? And I got my car and I went to the library <laughs> and it turned out it wasn't true. Not even in 1994. <laughs> right. Um, and so I went to women for sobriety, which still exists today. I went to rational, oh, wow. rational recovery, which today is, exists a little, but mostly is smart recovery. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I did SOS, Second Organization for Sobriety, which exists really, I think they have three meetings left, but basically that's LifeRing Secular Recovery today. And I'm on the board for LifeRing. And so I ended up, um, you know, I got all the books, just like I did for 12 Steps. I read all the books. I went to all the meetings and I synthesized the ideas that I thought would help me. And I built what today LifeRing would call a personal recovery plan. So that's really how I tackled my recovery. Yeah. I mean, that's very well-rounded. And uh, I like that you were 
willing to be a sponge and make some cognitive, uh, some logical decisions for yourself that were like, you know what, I can take that and leave the rest. And, and that's, I think that's a easy, uh, like a softer, gentler way. Kind of, we talk about, you hear about in Buddhism and meditation, like what's the, the softer, easier way to think about these things versus, you know, that, um, the saying, the hard and stiff will be broken. The soft and supple will prevail. It's from the Lao Tzu, you know, it's from the Tao. That's one of my favorite sayings. Yeah, that's true. And I like that. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you're right, because I didn't want to just like um, reject everything like that wasn't going to serve me, especially because they said that's all there was. And so I really try to be proactive, you know, to really do the work, do the research, do the analysis, but try to keep my mind open. Mind open, though, doesn't mean you accept everything you're told. It just means you're mm-hmm. listening and you're, you know, thinking about it. And I was, didn't want to reject any suggestions sort of out of hand. I wanted to think about them. And even if they weren't quite right, was there some part of it that was going to be useful for me that I could apply? And so I really try to approach it that way. Yeah, you tweeted uh, the uh, last week, what works at one point in our recovery may not help or may be a negative at a later point. It's important to reevaluate your plan intermittently. And I like that because, and it's also like what works for me may hurt you and kill you, you know, and, and vice versa, you know? So we have to, we really have to start getting in tune with ourselves. Yeah. And I'll say this, like the um, one example about what worked for me in the beginning that didn't later was the identifier. So, you know, we're, you're taught in 12 steps to identify yourself. I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. And in the beginning, I found that helpful. I felt like I sort of needed to beat it into my brain and say it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but by about six months, I was not comfortable with it anymore. I felt like I was saying it like it was the essence of who I am, like it was the most important thing about me, and it wasn't. And so I was getting less comfortable. And then I went to Women for Sobriety. And Women for Sobriety, the identifier is I'm Mary Beth, and I'm a competent woman. And that really met me where I was. And so that's an example that sometimes, I mean, something that really helps us early on may not be useful later. And it's okay to reassess and to make new decisions about what your plan's going to include. Sure. And I've, I've definitely, the past few years, I've really felt that, you know, because I still go to 12 step, but the identifier, I don't know that I feel that way anymore. You know, I obsess about little things, but I don't obsess about using or getting drugs or so I don't know really anyone that doesn't obsess occasionally about, you know, like a hyper focus on what they're really trying to do. Like I'm an artist. I do podcasts. Um, There's certain things that I I put my thinking and my essence into the thought of it. Is that a defect? I don't think it is. I just think it's like a nice it's a healthy focus. Right. I think it becomes a defect when it's interfering with the rest of your life. Right. I, I mean, right. I, mean, I wouldn't even use that term defect. I would say a, a, an area of concern. It, you know, to me, obsession is about the spinning. You know, it's about going over and over something beyond the point that it's helpful, right? Beyond the point that yes. it's useful. That's that's the problem with obsessing. Being focused and prioritizing and spending the appropriate amount of time on something that has value to you, that's mm-hmm. not an obsession unless it's preventing you from doing other things in your life that you actually do want to do. Right. Yeah. And I think it's good once I, I, I love 12 step. I mean, you know. But I also like trying new things outside and, 
living life and traveling and going to meditation retreats and journaling and, you know, piddling in the garage and being a gardener in our, in our yard and that kind of stuff. So it is good to really branch out and try stuff. And I like what you said about the, um, the women of sobriety, the sisters of sobriety. Is that how you say it? Women for sobriety. Women for sobriety. I like how you, you say I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, a, that's definitely a different um, blueprint. Yes. It, it gets to the core of the self-empowerment idea. I mean, what I did was really a self-empowered recovery. What I was told in rehab was that I was self-will run amok. Okay? Right. <laughs> um, but truthfully, when I, when I grabbed control of my sobriety and, and tried to figure out how to, how to make it work for me and what approach to take, I mean, what I really was doing was like an analysis, you know, like who, who am I really, you know, at my essence, what techniques and strategies might work for me. But then I had to set goals and build a plan and implement the plan and then revise the plan over time. And it turns out that that skill set actually applies to everything. <laughs> and so in a way, it was sort of good practice. It was building my competence and my confidence in my and trust in myself um, that helped me handle the other issues. And, and I had a lot of other things to work on. I mean, for me in particular, I had I was correctly diagnosed with PTSD after I got sober. I, I didn't even know you could have PTSD if you weren't a war vet, but I did. Sure. And it showed up as severe anxiety. So I had a lot of work to do there. So my sobriety, I needed to be sober to be able to work on the other issues um, because I tried when I was using and I just I could never make progress. Right. And so yeah. for me, being sober was the precursor to addressing the other issues. And the number one other um, problem that was standing in my way was my PTSD and my anxiety. In particular, it was standing in my way of enjoying my life. Even when I was in the early sobriety, I was making good choices and I was moving forward. I wasn't really enjoying it or feeling proud of it because I was so wound up with the anxiety. Mm. So what what was the catalyst for you to get help with the PTSD and the anxiety? What What techniques or therapies or modalities did you use? I mean, when I got home from rehab and they had given us a bit of therapy in rehab, I mean, not a lot, but a little, um, but I knew I needed, I knew I needed therapy. And so I did seek out someone who had trauma expertise and a little bit of expertise in substance use disorder, in addiction, as we said then. Um, and so I did individual therapy uh, for about three years. I did uh, anxiety meds for about two and a half or three years. But then at the three-year mark, she put me in, in a group therapy with other women with trauma histories. And that was a friggin' eye-opener. I mean, it was like a whole nother level of, um, of recovery because they were connecting their current behaviors and their current reactions back to their trauma in ways that I hadn't yet made the connection. And so seeing that sort of made me understand my myself better. And, it, and so I could um, I could more effectively tackle it because I could see the connections in a new way. And so that was a really helpful part of it for me. Yeah, that identification really makes you feel like, oh, maybe. well, for me, it really helped me have a little bit of hope like, oh, OK, someone else has kind of put this these dots together and maybe I can, too. Right. And I still put dots together like, oh, you know what? When someone said this and I got defensive, it really was about when I was 10 or whatever. You know, it's like, oh, that that defensiveness of feeling less than or, you know, being embarrassed by someone else. 
Right. I mean, it's funny because when I got sober, one of the things I did do was make a list of things I needed to work on. And, and, um, and I, and the list was really pretty long. Right? And so I, even then I knew I couldn't like even try to work on everything at once. It was too long a list. And so I had to pick five and I picked sobriety, um, trying to repair my relationship with my partner, trying to get a job and not get fired again. Like that was my real, <laughs> my professional goal was let's not get fired again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, to try to get my finances in order and to deal with my trauma. And that was it. Um, and, but even as I was, um, sober and d- doing work and able to see my own behavior in a new light, my list got longer and longer about what I needed to work on. And part of that was things like my reaction or the way I would treat people if I was triggered or if I felt like they, if I got frustrated or if they, push my fear button or something like that. Um, I didn't always behave, you know, a way that I was proud of. I would be mean or, you know, lash out. And so there are a lot of things to work on, but you do, you have to see them before you can start working on them. And so it's a, it's a long process. And the other thing is for me, I never, I was never able to leap to like, see it. Oh, now it's perfect. It's, it was always sort of that incremental thing where, okay, now I do better in sort of the stress-free environment I can do well. And then, but I don't do well if there, if I feel stress and then gradually with the increasing levels of stress, I could still do well. You know what I mean? It was always moving forward to the yeah. point that oh, even if I was my most stressed, I would probably not react in that way. But it took a while to get to that point. It's sort of like, it takes practice in a way. It takes experience to sort of move to the point where it's much, much harder to trigger me now than it was when I first got yeah. sober. Well, yeah. And you, as you were saying that, I just started to think about, you know, we talk about tolerance when you're using, but I had to learn stress tolerance. And like you were saying, like, okay, that stressed me out. I got through it. Okay. There's a little bit more stress. I, I didn't freak out there. I got through it. You build a stress tolerance too. Yeah. So I want to circle back a little bit because your book is called From Junkie to Judge. So, and you said you got sober at 32. What was going on before you got sober, like education, or had you already become an attorney and then had jobs? And then you got, it sounds like you got like, oh, um, and then how did you make the transition to judge? And then. Yeah. So when I, I, I went to college, uh, I went to Berkeley and I, gra- I had graduated from Berkeley, you know, in 84 and I went to rehab in 93. Um, but, um, but I, but in that interim, I had worked my way. I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new term. I love it. <laughs> down. Down that corporate ladder because, because I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't get there or I couldn't concentrate. So every job was like less money and less responsibility. So when I got sober, my resume was- You were in the mailroom. <laughs> I, I was a word processor and I could only hold it for nine months. And I had a Berkeley degree in good grades. I mean, it was a it was a decline. But, um, but so when I got sober, my resume was an embarrassment. Um, and so I, but I also wasn't ready to sort of leap into a professional job. And so I, one of the things when I was writing the book, it's a reflection time. And I'm really glad that I was able as much as I wanted. I mean, 32, I thought I was old. I had to make up for all this time. You know, there's that pressure. You feel like you got to make up for lost um, opportunities. But I was, I was, um, thinking well enough to say, you know what, I'm not ready. And so what I got was a part-time temporary low-level admin job. That was my first job out of rehab. Because for me to get up and go to work like every day on time and stay all the hours yeah. and do a good job and go back and do it the next day and the next, I was 32 and I had never done it. 
I needed like practice. And so then I moved my way up. I got into a mid-level administrative job, then a supervisor job and got a promotion. And then at six and a half years sober, I went to law school. Um, and so I went to Berkeley Law. I was 39, you know, so I was, you know, um, not young. Um, and then after I graduated from law school, I worked at a big law firm. Then I did class action work for the federal government. And then in 2014, when I had 20 years sober, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. Um, and I did that for five and a half years until I took um, what I emphasize is early retirement. And now I do advocacy work and I write and I do a lot of um, speaking engagements and trainings and things. So that's sort of that's the professional progression um, post sobriety. That's incredible. So I guess you you didn't have any legal problems like arrests or anything like that, did you? I was arrested when I was 18 for meth and hypodermics, um, mm. but I had gotten it expunged. They really treated me pretty lightly. It was the only time I was ever arrested. Yeah. Um, in fact, I read an article for the LA Times about how if I would have been a person of color, I probably wouldn't have been able to be a judge because I would have had a longer sure. criminal record, right? But um, I mean, the last 10 years, I had drugs on me every day. And even when I was stopped, mostly for traffic things, I was never searched, you know, but right. I had meth on me. <laughs> um um, so, so isn't that something? Yeah. Yes. And so when I like, when I took the California bar, they only asked, Did, have you used drugs in the last uh, illegal substances for the past five years? And I had 10 years sober. And so I was always sort of, and then when I, you know, got the work for the federal government, they asked about seven and I had 15, you know, so I was always sort of ahead of what they were asking for. Yeah. And so, um, when I was a judge, I did tell them eventually because I joined the board for Life Ring, Secular Recovery, and it's an outside activity. And I had to run it through ethics. But I didn't say, I just said, you know, I've got, I don't know, 23 years of sobriety. I want to join this board. Here's what I'm going to do. I didn't go into detail. So that was the first time I had to tell an employer. Wow. What, I mean, I just think about you, like, you know, when you were in the depths of the addiction, I mean, you, it's like, it's so, it's hard to fathom how it would turn out. I know. I know. And you know, it's not like I got sober and thought I'll be a judge someday. Right. right. It's, I just, again, I just wanted to not get fired. Okay. Like that. Right. Right. Um, yeah. It's just really about what's the right next step in profession and other areas. And so I was always thinking like, what's my right next job? So how do I get the skills I need to get that job? Right. And so it was just that progression forward, but it wasn't about, um, I, I never thought that that's where it would end up. I, um, but you know, 20 years is a long time. I mean, you can do a yeah. heck of a lot in 20 years, but even by, you know, four years, five years, I was really stable, you know, professionally. And also my anxiety, I was still working on that, but I was much better. And, you know, my relation, my partner and I did stay together. We actually have our 40th anniversary in April. Um, wow. so the, the job, the judge thing, I, I mean, I'm proud of the accomplishment, but what I really use that for now, it's an ear opener, right? It, it helps people listen to me when I talk about multiple pathways to recovery or when I talk about trying to reduce stigma or, you know, talking about um, other issues that I think are important. I'm a former judge with 30 years of sobriety and it just helps people hear me a little better. So I try to use it to advocate for my community. Yeah. And so let I'd like to hear about what advocacy work you do 
Yeah. So I'm on the board for Life Ring and I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation, which is not just substance recovery, but also trauma, mental health, other behavioral disorders, um, uh, self-harm, all of those things together, because most most of us have more than one thing to work on, right? Um, I'm on the board uh, advisory council for Higher Calling Foundation, which helps people rebuild themselves professionally when they get sober. Um, I write opinion pieces. I've had pieces in like the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times and Recovery Today. I have my book. And then I do a lot of speaking. I mean, I speak at conferences. I do trainings for lawyers and um, uh, peer support specialists and others. Um, I do workshops. I do keynotes. Fundra- you know, I, I'm a speaker for fundraisers for recovery groups, uh, things like that. So my, my husband says I need to look retirement up in the dictionary because I clearly don't understand what it means. But, you know, I mean, this is my, I feel like it's my time where I can speak openly uh, without um, and having to worry about consequences. And so I want to take advantage of that and um, use use my use this time to try to be of service and try to move the conversation forward and try to help people understand addiction better and understand recovery better and um and try to and really try to reduce that stigma around it that's awesome yeah it's you mentioned peer i just got my peer support specialist and i took in some rap classes so I, you know and i've sponsored people over the years and so it's super important that we give back what was given to us and and really just kind of be a part of the recovery community, even though our lives are good. And I want to switch um, or move forward. In this tweet, you talk about the joys of recovery more than professional accomplishments. I'm thrilled every day by the lack of chaos and misery in my life. Even when challenges rise, I can probably them move through. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's like being a judge. That's that's just a job, right? I mean, the joy of recovery is not is not getting it's not creating additional chaos and misery. I mean, life can be chaotic. Bad things will happen, but I'm not adding to it. (laughs) I'm not escalating it. I'm not making it worse. And also, (laughs) which is what we do, right? But also, I can be there for my husband or for my family when things, you know, go amiss. Emotionally be there, you know, be helpful to them and all of those things. So, um, I, I really do appreciate the lack of that, um, of that turmoil. I mean, I really think that's sort of underneath all success is not getting sucked into that. It's such a, the focus on substances when we're in our active addiction is just takes up 95% of our brain energy, mm-hmm. 95% of our emotional energy. And when you don't have it anymore, you have your, your mind and your emotions can get more regulated and you can really fully participate in life. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it is, it is. And uh, I saw this thing the other day, it said, uh, don't mistake, and it was in re- reference to recovery. It said, "Don't mistake boredom for peace." <laughs> That's true. Because you know, a lot of us are addicted to the chaos when we're using, and and the drama, and the story, and you know that fr- the freedom you talk about in there for uh, <laughs> recovery. Like I used to put less than a dollar in my gas tank to get somewhere to get another one. You know. And and my, one of my habits being clean. Yeah. One of my habits being clean is I always fill it up. I don't ever put like five or three or two because that was an addiction thing, you know? And like, I don't like dishes in the sink piling up because it reminds me of like 
you know, eating cereal off a plate because I didn't have any clean dishes. It's like, there's, there's more to life and there are things that help me appreciate and, and show gratitude for life as it is, you know? Right. And I'll tell you the other place it showed up for me was in my relationship because I grew up in a very violent and emotionally volatile household, which is one reason at one point I chose a violent boyfriend. And so my husband is much he's much, he's mellow. Generally, he's a low key kind of a guy. And it took me a a while, even sober to really appreciate the, the loveliness of that, or the, the joy of that, the um, solid foundation that he was offering me. Cause when I, I was used to things being at this heightened emotional level. And some, sometimes I felt like, well, if you're not reacting at that level, then you don't really love me or you don't really care. Um, but in sobriety and over time, I was really able to see the 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 much stronger foundation he was offering me because of the way he approached life and because of the way he approached our relationship. Yeah, it's awesome. It almost takes us a while to believe that it's this different way is actually a real way that you can live your life. Yes, it, absolutely. It does. You're right. Yeah. So what prompted the book? When did you get the inspiration to put it all all down on paper? Well, I mean, when I was appointed a judge, you know, 20 years sober and all, it was sort of a natural reflection time, right? How the heck did I go from shooting meth at 17 (laughs) to getting appointed Mm -hmm. a judge? And so I started thinking about whether my story could be useful. Um, You know, can can it be useful? And a couple of things. One is that I realized I started reading Recovery Memoir, which I I hadn't done much. Uh, And first of all, I realized, oh, my gosh, it's written like a novel. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to do that. I got to learn how to do that. Um, but also, I felt like a lot of the recovery memoirs, they sort of leap into the addiction, but they don't show where it came from. And mm. so the beginning of my memoir is really showing what led up to it, you know, why it made sense to me, as you say, why it worked in the beginning and what were the uh, the impetus to keep going at that mm. heightened very heightened level of using. Um, and then I got the usual, you know, addiction stuff stories in there, but the 30% of my book is recovery mm. because I felt like a lot of memoirs at the end, they go, I went to a couple meetings and everything was great. And it's like, well, that's not how recovery works. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but also because I did it a, a different way than, than most people, most of the memoirs that I read, they were 12 step memoirs. And I support 12 steps, you know, when it's a good fit, but I didn't see a memoir that wasn't 12 step. And so even though 12 steppers certainly can use the same techniques and strategies that I talk about, I mean, it's, you know, universally applicable. I wanted to write a, you know, a book that showed a different approach um, as so people could think about if that would be a good fit for them. And so it was sort of all of those reasons I thought, I don't really see the book out there that I want to write. And so I thought it was worth putting the effort in. And um, plus, it was actually an intellectual challenge to try to figure out how to write a good memoir. And I do like intellectual challenges. So there was that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. So what is your how how do you maintain your recovery today? You've been at it a long time. I'm, you know, just share with the audience some of that stuff. I mean, I really haven't fought with my sobriety since around, you know, my two and a half to three years at most. And then I think that's, as you said, I think that's true for most of us with long-term sobriety. It doesn't mean I've forgotten. I mean, I remember the misery and I really do draw a hard line. Like, like, like I won't even eat tiramisu because it gets soaked. If it gets soaked in alcohol, my husband laughs at me because he says, Mary Beth, children eat tiramisu. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but I don't mess around with the edges. Um, so I haven't had to struggle with my sobriety, but um, the the mental health side, I still do sometimes struggle with. And uh, I mean, it's much better. I, I say I'm 92 to 95% recovered, you know, from the trauma. Yeah. But occasionally I can get triggered. And for me, the the part of um, of maintaining my sort of uh, recovery in that area is, first of all, noticing when I get triggered and trying not to react, but also talking about it and not just ignoring it, right? Trying to um, share with my husband or with my friends what's going on. And I do do some meetings where she recovers and I don't really talk about my sobriety in those meetings. I talk about um, my stressors because that's really the longer term mm. issue, the longer term issue. Wow, that's great. That that's cool. So, what would you, as far as you don't believe in a higher power, would you say you're agnostic or atheist? I I personally am atheist. Um, but the okay. other thing I'll say is that I mean there are atheists and agnostics that make twelve step work, yeah. and there are a lot of faith based people in the other programs because mm-hmm. they don't like twelve steps for a different reason than higher power. Like not everybody likes that. Well, twelve steps is structured if you like it, and it's rigid if you don't. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, And not everyone likes the sponsor relationship where they don't really agree that they're powerless. So so it's not like there's this clear faith based line between programs. There's a lot of people that mix it up in different ways. But for me, yeah, I I do consider myself um, an atheist and I view my it's funny because sometimes people say, well, then do you think you're your higher power? It's like, well, no, it's not about higher, but I really feel like um, a self-empowered recovery is only about you being the decision maker. You know, Mm. that's all. It's not about you shutting your ears down or shutting your mind off or not listening. It's about, I'm going to decide what, what I think will work for me. But the other thing is that I don't care if you choose 12 steps or a different program, none of us are going to make perfect recovery decisions, right? It just doesn't happen. And so it's also, so about paying attention to what's working and what's not working and then adjusting. Um, so that's sort of how I think about it. I feel like I, I, I think I did the right thing, sort of deciding for myself what would work. But I also, again, when I was looking back, writing the book, I also really did work hard to listen to everything that was coming my way. I mean, if people were talking during the cigarette break at an NA meeting about some strategy they were using, I was paying attention to that. You know, I was really trying to hear all the suggestions and ideas and techniques that I could find. And then even some of them put them away for later. Like maybe they weren't useful now, but to remember them because later they might be useful. That's a, I think that's a great approach. I mean, it just, that's, that's kind of how I model my recovery today too. Like I'm still willing to listen to things that are going on and techniques to try new stuff. And I think it like, it's an intellectual challenge to do some of these things. It's like, oh, maybe I'll give that a shot. Or maybe I'll read that book. You know, sometimes a book is the voice that you needed to hear because it's not coming from the person that used to trigger you when you were younger. You it's- know, and it's just like, oh wow. And and you you can paint the pictures with your own mind and visualize that that what they're saying may work. So well, we are almost out of time. I wanted to uh ask you to share your recovery nuggets with the audience. You shared a lot tonight. I like how you said that um you stay away from the edges and you know, you also mentioned self-empowered recovery. I like those two concepts. So what what recovery nuggets could you share with someone that may be trying to quit or is already in recovery? 
I mean, I think for me, I think if I was to pick two main things, it's patience and persistence, right? Mm. I mean, I, I use I used three times in my first five months. You know, I used three times in my first five months, and now I have thirty years, right? And so part of it is trying to you know keep moving forward, even if you aren't doing it perfectly. Um, and then having patience with yourself when you make mistakes or when you're, you know, frustrated with yourself or whatever it might be. Because the truth is we walk into recovery only with a part of, we don't, most of us only have access to part of who we really are. I mean, part of what gets uncovered in the recovery process is a reconnection to your original self. And, and I actually thought about that, right? I, when I got sober, I thought, who was I before the drugs and before the abuse? And because those characteristics are in me, they're like my who I naturally was. And if I could connect to those parts of me, I thought it would give me a better shot at recovery and also at um, at sort of at finding out my strengths, right? Who I was initially. And so part of it is there's a, um, a gradual uncovering of your true self in recovery. And so, but that, that, that takes patience. It takes time and, um, and it's not going to be a perfect uphill, uh, you know, pl- um, line. It's going to be up and down, up and down. And that's just part of the process. <laughs> oh, 100%. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. And I will put all the the links to your book in the show notes. Thank you. And I appreciate the conversation. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Get in touch with the show via Instagram at Recovery Nuggets Podcast. Also, the email is recoverynuggetspodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Thank you for showing up for your recovery today. Recovery Nuggets podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I'm not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experience, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Mm-hmm.